0: Hey, listeners, we've loved delving into the business of wine with you and our guests. Your feedback via email, text, social media, and by joining us on our live episodes on Clubhouse has meant the world to us, and we keep striving to do better and better.
1: Some of you have asked on how you can help support the show. So we've decided to launch on Patreon, where your contributions can offset the cost of the show and you can get access to our full library of episodes with more benefits to come. To become a patron of X Chateau, go to patreoncom Chateau to lend your support, starting at five dollars a month. You can find the link in our show notes or on XChateau.com. We will give a shout out to all new patrons each episode.
0: Welcome to X Chateau, X Chateau, the podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights.
1: With your hosts Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of Ex Chateau. Today, we're doing a little retrospective. After 100 episodes of Ex Chateau, Peter and I have decided to talk about what we learned over the last two years. So join us, pull up a glass of wine, sit down, pull up a chair and a glass of wine and sit down. We're going to just cover some of our topics that we went through and how it's been and how everything's changed so quickly, even in two years. It's really been a a rapid iteration in the wine industry and things have been evolving quickly, obviously due to the pandemic, but also as we're coming out of it, a lot of things are changing quickly. And I think the show went in directions that we never expected it to go.
0: I don't think we ever would have thought of even making it this far (laughs) two years in and 100 episodes in when you kind of pitched this idea at our tasting group our Blind Tasting group, I'm like, what are you talking about? Podcast? <laughs> and
1: I was like, you wrote a book and I, and I do stuff on social media. What could go wrong?
0: I know. I was like, what are we going to talk about? You're like, well, oh, you have the book. We can talk about that. And so we were initially going to do something like this, more of a banter type format where it's you and I talking most of the time. And then we interviewed a couple people, especially, you know, our early interviews, Lauren McFay from Tribeca Wine Merchants to Marston at Wine.com. And and kind of realize, wow, we learn so much from other people rather than just doing our
1: re- the research ourselves. And it's just easier, let's be honest. Let's <laughs> be honest. It's, it's easier to interview people and have them talk when they're experts as opposed to, as opposed to us We're trying to teach someone something and, and have show notes. It's harder to be a teacher.
0: We only have to write the questions instead of the questions and the answers. Well, one of the things that surprised me in over two years, a little over two years, or about two years, Has how much social media has changed. And we've spent a lot of time on this topic. It's super important for the wine industry, one that two years ago was so nascent and now feels like it's so core to the industry. But it changes so quickly. I feel like Instagram is not quite as popular as it used to be. We just talked to Amanda McCrossin about how TikTok has really taken off, really, in the last six months. If you asked me six months ago whether or not a high-end winery should use TikTok, I probably would have said no. If you asked me today, I'm like, probably yes, right? Or at least trying to figure out and dabble into it a little bit. How have you seen social really changing? I mean, you play in it a lot. I, I'm still the relative quote unquote, noob <laughs> social media.
1: I mean, they're all kind of merging to some extent. So in terms of functionality, so videos on TikTok can go up to 10 minutes or, or there's three minute videos and IG rolled out Reels in this time as well as IGTV, as well as live streaming. YouTube has live streaming as well as shorts, which are basically their version of Reels. So everybody's kind of like, kind of cross pollinating into these. But the one thing that's true is that it's like, it's gone away from pictures to more, interactive, higher production value quality content. Now, obviously, I think the production quality on YouTube is still always going to be the highest. And then in TikTok, it's a little bit more kind of raw, but it's still, it's still video, right? And they have powerful tools. And so it's you can just take a pretty photo in a vineyard or a pretty bottle of wine and hope that you kind of garner the same kind of audience. And I think even the wineries that are playing in the space are kind of doing a lot more things in terms of lives and videos and educational stuff and updating the community and really actively engaging and and participating and it's not just a it's not just a marketing arm or a person that they delegate it to to do it it's actually a, a platform for communication as opposed to a, a platform for content
0: but I, I think that's a really interesting point because does that change who can become and how an influencer as quote-unquote social media influencer and how they operate because you have people like like amanda who have a background in film and acting and things like that or I think we talked to Nicole Muscari, who has a similar kind of background, versus people like maybe me, who may have aspired to be, I didn't, but like (laughs) aspired to be and just took pictures and wrote captions and, and whatnot. Does that create a different barrier to entry for influencers and maybe even kick some out that were just doing mostly picture content before?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I definitely think it, or it will stop them from evolving. They may just, they may tread water from where they're at if they're already in that space. But I don't, I think it'll be harder for them to grow. And I think it'll be harder to cross-pollinate into other platforms and not, again, each platform has its own kind of value proposition and its own target market. You know, I think it's really different. You know, I would say two years ago, there was no one who really cracked the wine YouTube nut until, except for Gary Via with Wine Library back in the day. But since then, you've got Wine King, who basically... Predominantly with a Korean audience, but also now a global audience has really taken gotten massive followings and massive views. Andre Mack with Bon Appetit, his the quality levels on those videos are insane. Not as frequent in terms of the volume, but the quality levels off the charts, like really, really high in production. And multiple of his videos have gotten one million views. And then Constantine, um, one of the MWs in Germany, he's been growing of really steady, also very good production values. So there's people who are starting to like figure it out because it is like what I think of education, wine, there's a lot to learn, obviously. And I think that a lot of times people go to the internet, not, instead of going to these wine sites, they can go to places. And if they have people like Andre Mack and Constantine, if they have actual knowledgeable people in Wine King, I think he's an MW student as well. And then he has an MW uh, mentor on there. There's some great knowledge sources there that, uh, that you just couldn't get. And it's really changing how people are talking about wine as well.
0: But that almost moves it more to traditional media. So we talked to Jason Wise, right, of Som TV. How does that differentiate? Because he also has short form sort of videos, like five, 10 minute videos that are educational and things of that nature on SOM TV. Isn't that what's I guess, what's the difference between what you're talking about on YouTube versus what Jason's doing on SOM TV?
1: Well, I mean, the big difference is that Jason gets paid for his things because he actually has his own billing and his own platform. And so he's he's built his franchise up around those movies. And then to be able to offer a whole streaming service, I don't know all the economics behind that, but he's getting 100% of the of the take, right? And you go to a Netflix or if you go to YouTube, you're advertising backed. And, and I think anytime you're dealing with alcohol, that's tricky, right? It's like, who wants to advertise in that space? And who are you advertising to? There's a lot of rules and it varies a lot by country. So there's a lot of complexities. But for him, he's like, I'm just creating a streaming service. And if you want it, like, obviously, you have to, you know, you have to be of a certain requirements, but he's doing age verifications while he's doing payments. So I think it's, uh, he has the big picture view, you know, and as opposed to, I don't think influencers can play in the Jason Y space, because the production values are just too high and the actual platform is but to be honest, he could bring people who are making good content into the fold for his platform. And he has a lot of people, but it's a drop in the bucket in the grand scheme of a YouTube or an Instagram or a TikTok, right?
0: But there's no like social element, I guess, right, to what Jason's doing. And is that important?
1: Yeah, he's only getting the people who are interested in the viewing of the content as opposed to the interaction. I think that that is the real difference in terms of those people. It, there's actually a, it's like a back and forth communication between the person creating the content and the person asking a question or leaving a comment and creates a community, essentially. creates micro-communities that can be very powerful, and honestly, those people who do those things can go and do lots of different things and branch out if they do them well, and those people will go with them on the journey. Speaking
0: of communities and sort of related to social media, Seller Tracker, we talked to Eric Levine, is making after almost after over a decade, I think, investment to actually grow and expand what they do and and do more data analytics, I think maybe open up the site more because before it was just like him and one or two other people. It was very lean, very functional. Why do you think it makes sense or what is it about the environment today that makes it ready to take this on?
1: Well, I mean, I think he's seen the success of some companies like Favino, who've gone to raise a lot of capital and garner a lot of press. You see other people doing similar things and making their own communities, and but he already has a community and he's searched so often and he's got such a powerful database of information and that people want to talk about it. And they're all on the same... Topic already right? They're all they're already already sharing their tasting notes and and when they think things are ready to drink and it's like how do you give an opportunity for those people to interact and so through liking other people's comments or notes and or commenting on other people's notes but expanding that out I think is huge and obviously it's very functional as a seller management software like I mean anybody who's gonna venture into creating a seller management software needs to say like how do I what's my value proposition against seller tracker because it's already so great and he's like he's using like the original Patreon like right people are. You tell me what you want to pay me. You opt in and whether it's large or small, like we give you some guidance, but you think that's great because I think some people are going to contribute quite a bit there. The original freemium model. Exactly. The other thing I think is interesting. I never thought we would have covered, uh, we've covered a wide spectrum of the wine world. Like obviously we've talked to a Rennie on, on like the super fine wine consumer. I've talked to auction houses. We've talked about wine investing because that seems to be all the rage if anybody's been on social media. I'm sure they've seen a targeted ad at them to invest in wine. Hey, it's better than S&P 500. <laughs> uh, but then also we've talked about counterfeit wine. We've talked about various levels. Any from Better For You wine from Fit Fine to uh, grocery stores to, you know, the premium luxury $12 wine space, making wines that are going to have a five to seven euro lifespan with hammock and cellar. So it's, it's a lot of spectrum. And that, oh, and also can't skip over uh 19 crimes, right? Like that's always more of a technology, but like the conversation is more technology, but it's also about kind of a broadening different landscape of consumers.
0: So we have all the quadrants in the spectrum for all your business of wine essays for the MW program. You, you got to <laughs> yeah, pass yeah. that paper. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Praying for a, four, a paper four, a paper four.
0: Yeah. Uh, One of the things that really stands out to me in terms of context and what it may have changed today and really only like six months is the wine as an investment area, right? It was so hot, like all alternative investments were so hot six months ago. You had crypto to even gold to some degree, but all the tech stocks, everything was running high as the Federal Reserve and other central banks around the world were pumping trillions of dollars into the system. Now with tons of inflation being May 2022, the war in Ukraine and Russia really having a supply shock on on wheat and oil and natural gas
1: recession on the loom.
0: Yeah. Well, potentially driving the federal reserve to higher interest rates, pulling liquidity out of the system to create a recession, really to bring down inflation. It'll be interesting to really see what happens to wine investing. Cause in some ways cash is trash as Ray Dalio would say, because Inflation so high, it's it's eroding away in value if you hold it in cash, and you're not making enough on on interest. Do you put it into hard assets like real estate and or alternative assets like wine, which is a hard asset that maybe appreciates, or was it more that people were looking for return and like a crypto kind of thing? They're throwing their extra money at it, and so it's driving up pricing dramatically and will it come back? Because I think that luxury wine sector, which you know, I've studied a little bit, is very tied to net wealth, right? And people are willing to pay more as they feel wealthier and it's way up, at least it's net wealth lagged by a year on the way down, might be a little faster than that. But will that really contract and contract in pricing? The hard part is, I think we've talked about this with some of our guests, is that liquidity is not that high right so people even less so than real estate so people might not necessarily sell their wine and just hold on to it until it's better and then it, it may look like it's great even though if you try to unload it maybe in the next year or two it might be less i don't know do you have any thoughts on that
1: i mean that if the 2019 and 2020 burgundy release prices are any indication it doesn't sound like that's an issue in terms of supply and demand just being a major issue in terms of the number of people who are wealthy that want to buy these things and these prices are going up massively year over year, considerably more than 10%. In some cases, 25, 30% every year. It's it's insane. And then also, then you have supply dropping out through various frost damage early on in the years. And then, so you're, you're getting smaller, some okay to excellent vintages over the last couple of years. And those are the quality of the vintage doesn't seem to be driving the prices up. It's the supply. It's what are people willing to pay the for? The lack and of supply, right? Yeah, exactly. The amount of bottles that are in circulation for that vintage are driving the price, not whether the 2019 or the 2020 vintage is better isn't driving the price.
0: But a lot of the real fallout has been over the last couple months and is probably still to come. And so I've read a couple articles that said that even for high and burgundy, the top names are still doing really well. But all the periphery names or the other names that were doing well as the top names sort of coming along with the top names are started to stagnate in terms of price appreciation. And so uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens with 21 on Premier, with 21 Burgundy prices as we get into later 2022, 2023. If we continue on this trend and move into recession, what happens to the pricing there?
1: It'll be pretty interesting to see what happens with Bordeaux, because you're going to have a little bit more consistent of crop there in terms of supply and to see how prices move there. If they if they hold flat, do they go down? Obviously, the Bordeaux are savvy businessmen and or business people and are looking to kind of min-max their pricing. But I think with Burgundy, I, I think that even, yes, there are, I don't think the prices are going anywhere. And maybe the some of the lower, less known domains are not able to command the same increase as some of the other domains. But they're still going up because that supply is still a major issue for everybody.
0: And the other end of the spectrum has changed dramatically as well, I think. The grocery stores, during the pandemic, everyone flocked there and was buying everything there because everything else was closed pretty much or moving online to buy. And as everything has started to open up again, we've seen that shift back out and more on-premise and restaurants and less in the grocery stores. But as we move into an inflationary environment, a high inflationary environment where a lot of people are sort of scaling back some of their budgets and whatnot, does that benefit the grocery store where they are they are going to be spending money? You can't get away from not buying groceries at a, at a grocery store. And do they not then make those purchases at specialty wine stores where they may be buying higher end wines?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I always believe that the grocery store purchases are either impulse or... What I'm willing to pay. <laughs> it's like I choose this quality of meat, you know, based on what what I'm willing to pay for a steak that week. The same thing would be true for a bottle of wine in the grocery store. And I think when you're shopping, and especially wine retailers, a little bit more of an influence of I'm actually looking for something either not for right now or for a special moment. It's less commodity based, right? And so, and I think that's going to be all based on the individuals perspective when they're in the grocery store of like, what's a Thursday night wine for me?
0: It's more of a luxury good when you go to the wine store and it's more of a necessity or commodity good when you're at the grocery store.
1: And let's be honest, there are some amazing grocery stores with amazing selections that really can cater to their demographics and they're going to dial that in for their local markets.
0: Yeah, what did Curtis Mann say? Some of his stores have like thousands of SKUs in them.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I definitely think it's an interesting take on how do we see more delineation? And, and how many of those small, like how many small wine retailers struggled or weren't prepared for online sales and went out of business? I know a number in the Bay Area that have had some major struggles and weren't ready. They were just, they were foot traffic and no one was going to them during the pandemic. And they tried to ramp up into online more, but it was it was hard because that wasn't the majority of their business. It was a bad planning. Like you obviously can't plan for a pandemic, but if they didn't have the right infrastructure to capitalize on it, like some other retailers did.
0: Yeah, one, one of the really seminal series I think that kind of really got a lot more listeners for us and maybe a lot of you listening learned about our show through there was our series on the evolution of the wine critic where we talked to everyone from William Kelly of the Wine Advocate to Jeb Dunnick to Esther Mobley, Jackie Strum of Wine Enthusiast. What do you think made that series so impactful?
1: I think in most cases, everybody was very candid and open. And I'm not sure if it's just because we're really charming or if they, <laughs> if they just, uh, they're like, ah, no, I was going to hear this anyways. They were uh, drinking. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but no, no, I think um, obviously I can listen to William Kelly talk at length. It's that British accent that's just oh so soothing. And no, but he's also you know, very articulate, blends in a lot of historical context to why he's saying something
0: words we had to learn or understand what he was saying <laughs> <It's a
1: parcelization>. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know i think let also also have someone who's an expert and, and one of the quotes i love from him is like he's like there's two types of wine writers ones that are collectors and and ones that just write about wine yeah and buy wine and then ones that that don't and i really feel that with him like you know i know he loves drinking a lot of older wines but also he, i think having that context while you're Chasing these younger vintages of, of the same said wines is really, really interesting. But it's just, you can feel the passion for someone like that. And I would say the same is true for Jeb Dunning. Like, I know he's he's a buyer first and foremost and a writer afterwards. And I love that. And I, I actually really like it, the way his thought process, and I think you were talking about this, you were surprised how methodical he was. It's like his engineering mindset never left and that's how he approaches wine
0: criticism and it's it works so well he's like my customer or my clients my subscribers want to know what to buy so I'm going to make it as easy as possible and engineer a system so that they're able to easily find out what they want to buy and inform them as to what they should buy no matter what style of wine they like right and, and that was fascinating because I think when you look at others like maybe Esther Mobley is more of a journalistic approach and more about storytelling versus his his focus was on making it easy for his subscribers to buy.
1: Yeah and then Esther on the other side was really digging into the backgrounds of like why something was happening and and less about criticism and more about like the people behind what's happening what were these major trends that are happening in the industry and kind of highlighting something and really delving deep in really journalism, right? It's not just criticism. It's, it's actually journalism. Yeah, Another area, obviously, we thought we were just going to have a bunch of time because we we're locked in our houses. The other thing that we had a bunch of craziness happening in multiple parts of the world, which really made social issues first and foremost. And I don't see that going away anytime soon. It seems like, uh, especially in America, we, 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 like to, we like to stir the pot these days. So yeah, we covered a lot of things about diversity and gender equality and and even climate change. And those were really interesting topics and it was fun to find people who could speak to these. You know, obviously talking with the Roots Fund and what they're doing in this space. You went out to their auction recently, which is their first annual Roots Fund auction, which was great. And I learned that there's no buyer premiums on uh, (laughs) on charity auctions, which is a huge win. I was like, oh, oh, that's a different story. But yeah, that was super cool. It's like 20, 25%, right? Yeah. What are your thoughts on those topics? I mean, obviously, we've covered a lot there.
0: It's surprising to me that I think everyone has a top of mind, but I don't think everyone engages, when I say everyone, I mean everyone in the industry, in the wine industry, engages with it as top of mind as maybe they should, and as much as they think about it, and make the investment in to grow those things going forward. So one of the big things, I mean, climate change obviously changes the whole game in terms of what you plant, where you plant, how you farm and whatnot. But when you think of, I think, the macroeconomic environment and trends of the wine industry, and you look at wine in the U.S. having kind of plateaued from a consumption perspective. And you're getting retirement and even passing of a lot of the boomer generation. We know the Gen X generation is smaller and the millennials and Gen Z haven't quite taken up to wine quite yet, right? They're sort of in the early phases of wealth creation and getting into wine and all that. So that would presumably lead to a shrinking of the wine industry, right? As Gen X becomes the predominant thing. Well, what's one way we can actually solve for that? Improving the diversity and gender equality, which were both historically underrepresented, right? And these people have the money, especially in the Gen X cohort, and if we as an industry can make the investment upfront to create space, new spaces, to create the culture of these different, whether it's ethnicities, whether it's more women or whatever it is, to be even just on par with the, what the population is and have them start drinking wine and then moving up the ladder and drinking better and better wines and whatnot, then we have the opportunity to actually like at least stabilize the industry. Because we'd be overrepresented as we are sort of in the traditional white male wine buying, drinking, and then bringing in everyone else we could at least stabilize. And then that's going to move on to the millennials and the younger generations and start to grow it again. So I think these are vital topics that are important for us to talk about and spread the word about, but for everyone to really engage in. And I'm not sure that people in the wine industry or even in the wine-consuming public, engage in them as deeply as I think would be crucial and beneficial for the industry itself to not have contraction and to actually think about maintaining and expanding.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think to market to those different age groups, you definitely have to like, especially when you're going into a millennial and below, into Gen Z, you're gonna you're gonna have to look at how do you make sure that you're representing the causes. Like, it's not. I mean, you even see with employment people, people they don't want to spend up their money on something or don't even want to work for a company who doesn't stand for their same values. And that's true about the products that they're gonna consume, especially ones that are gonna go on or in their body, as talked about with Territorium wines. For all intents and purposes, is an expert marketer to. That demographic in their day job, right? And that's an interesting side note. So you you have to change what you're targeting and how you're talking about issues that are relevant. And there's no more important issues, no more vastly dividing issues like about how do we improve diversity and gender equality in this country, it, let alone in the wine industry. And then obviously the other one being climate change. Like people want to know that you're actually doing something about it. You're helping, not hurting. And let's be honest. In theory, wines an agriculture product that actually is a, a carbon sink if done correctly, but as soon as you put it in a glass and ship it around the, the world, you take all that goodness away and, and at a cost to it, you're not helping. But what we do have is that, uh, that wine is the most luxurious agriculture product out there and it actually can be a champion for what this looks like for all big ag.
0: Like Jason Haas's $95 wine in a box right? That saves 40% of their carbon emissions or 40% of the packaging is something like that. And why not for a rosé that's going to be drunk right away and with a shortage of glass and sand and everything else and the cost of electricity to make those things, that could be a great solution for wines that are not meant to age to be drunk right away. So it was amazing last two years So much has changed. Process has changed, you know, in terms of what we do and how we do it. What are some of the things that you're really interested in tackling next?
1: We always have a running list of topics. And I would say most of our topics are driven by things we're interested in. We reach out to people. Occasionally, PR companies reach out to us and pitch clients. And we're like, great, how do we make this a business topic as opposed to a biopic or a bio episode? And so in terms of drilling into something, we always get somewhere and I think come up with good content. For me, obviously, I'm thinking about what are some examples that will help me with my my future exams. So understanding the global wine markets and trends and be able to speak to those in an educational way for our audience, I think is super interesting to me.
0: Well, I think different business models also plays into those examples, right? We're hopefully going to talk to some people who do like co-ops and custom crushes and things of that nature. One of the topics that I had wanted to do right when we started talking about interviewing people was understanding the wine buying journey of wine collectors and like actually talking to a bunch of different wine collectors. We found it to be pretty challenging. I reached out to a friend who's CEO of a major biotech company that's public, and he's like, our PR firm would never allow me to do this, unfortunately. (laughs) They don't even necessarily have to be wine experts or wine collectors, but just understanding the drivers of why people really want to buy wine and then the ones who really get into it. How they get into that. And I think that would help the industry a lot, you know, understand that psyche and be able to create situations that benefit those people or make it easier for them to get into.
1: We almost want like exit polls like, hey, we see you came out of Safeway with a. Uh- with a bag of wine why did you buy this and, uh, <laughs> yeah. or, or then you go to a wine store and then, then you go to like a wine event and do it right and it's, uh, it's like in figuring out all those different like follow
0: thatcher around right thatcher basically exactly, so yeah. we interviewed <laughs> he's since he's drinking the best stuff anyway right <laughs> like, have jason wise follow him around and then let us tag along and record the audio
1: <laughs> exactly exactly there's tons of interesting topics and uh Some of it, we're trying to be like of the moment and catch up. And I think covering the low, no alcohol space was interesting. There's probably more for us to do there. I still think there's more parts of the climate change. Like what are people doing about it in terms of like whether bottle recycling or bottle reuse? Those are huge things that can be happening there. Trying to think other in terms of I would love to talk to LCBO or other monopolies because those are just an area that's very different than how we operate. Uh, we covered, I, you know, something related to like how we did the three tier system for, with Tim Work to talk about Tim Work. We talked about three tier system and kind of given a breakdown of how you have essentially these fifty different states that are up. Op- operate almost like 50 different countries. Okay, well, what does it mean to have a massive, like something like Norwegian or or LCBO kind of like monopoly where, where they're the one-stop shop and you have to like, how does that work for those consumers? And how do you get into that? Because if you get into LCBO, that could be a huge sales channel for a lot of uh, wineries and wine brands.
0: Or even how like they sell. It might be a huge channel, but... How does it get promoted or what actually pulls through, right? Yeah. So, I mean, we're
1: always open. Please, if you ever have any ideas for topics, we're always open to either drop us an email or hit us up on uh, Instagram or LinkedIn for that matter. All right, Peter, let's do our kind of typical year end. What was your most memorable wine in the last year? And who did you drink it with? Well, one of my best
0: friends, Claudio, turned 40 last year. And he inherited like a wine cellar when he bought his house in the Berkeley Hills And the guy who owned it before, who owns like a vineyard, not a winery, but a vineyard up in Napa, was a big wine collector. I think he was like a biotech guy or something. And he left like 200 bottles of really old, interesting stuff, like old age duns, wines from the 70s, a couple first grows. Like there's an old grange in there and and then some like stuff that's probably undrinkable, (laughs) you know. But one of the things we opened for that occasion was a 1920 Cossart Malmsey Madeira. And like you expect from Madeira, it still tasted fresh and amazing, but with even more complexity to it. And it just felt like drinking a piece of history, which is sort of the beauty of drinking those, those old wines. But it definitely was not tired at all. And I saved a little vial. So maybe one time when we hang out in drink wine together maybe i'll bring that little vial and <laughs>
1: we can share that it's not gonna go bad there's not much more you can do to that <laughs> yeah. wine what about you i'm gonna cheat because i went down to the first la Pale in la for the gala dinner with a bunch of la collectors and got lucky to be invited down i joined but i was invited to join their table of some of these la collectors and I, I mean it was like the greatest hits of wines that i can't afford to drink and then everybody else kept coming over to our table and we were also tasting with winemakers you know jeremy says at our table you know, pouring. Mid nineties, Grand Cru Dujac out of three liter bottles, and you know it was just it was just a fabulous evening with amazing food and really kind of not stuffy. I mean, there was obviously there was stuffy wine in terms of there was like really fancy wine, but everybody was really just sharing and talking about stuff. And at some point, you're just not sitting down. And that whole evening, I just thought was amazing, and I thought LA was an amazing venue. In fact, I actually liked the vibe better than New York and San Francisco the other times I've went. And it could be just because I knew more people at this point. I uh, guess it was my third La Palais. But yeah, I think just, you know, it got the taste of Rumier Echazo 2018. I didn't even know they made an Eschizeau. I was like, and then a couple of the Beaumars and and then uh, Jackie Truchot. So there's like several bottles of Loire and DRC and Rousseau. And it was just like, and then also really old things like Bonnet de Martre, a Magnum from the mid 70s. And I brought some old late release uh, La Flav, um so just, it was just so much fun to like share wines with actual other wine geeks who really like collecting and sharing. And it was just, was I giving the wines all the respect they needed? No, I probably should have spent an evening with each of those bottles, but it is a hedonistic joy. And it was, it was just fun to hang out with all those people and enjoy those that caliber of wine because it's, it's such a rarity to taste any of those bottles, let alone that many in one evening.
0: That sounds awesome. I can't
1: believe you actually remember any of it. that's what my phone is for i take photos and take little notes on the phone (laughs) that is the only reason now that's for sure and then the after party was more of a blur
0: there you go but the last two years have been pretty incredible Uh, i'm looking forward to continuing it on and seeing what's next and for those of you who want to delve into our back library of catalogs don't forget that our supporters on Patreon have access to the entire system, and we'll be re-releasing library episodes over time so that people can hear some of, some of the insights that we've had before. But there's always over 50-plus episodes available for everyone all the time. So thanks for listening. We uh, hope to continue to bring more and more great content going forward. Cheers. Don't forget to go to patreon.com slash xchateau If you'd like to support us in bringing you the highest quality content on the business of wine. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time. Cheers.